Good morning. Hope everybody's having a great 4th of July weekend. And uh, I know this service is the uh, least attended service, but here's the bright spot. Um, I've already preached this several times, so I'll be pretty polished, huh? Now that I say that, I'll probably bomb, but anyway. But it's good to see you this morning. I hope you are having a great weekend. So I came across this survey by Timex, uh, you know, the watch people. And the survey talked about things that we hate to wait on. But what made it a little more interesting than your average I hate to wait on survey was when it surveyed people, it asked them how long they would wait for a particular thing. And I'm just going to share a few of those with you this morning because I think they're kind of interesting. Like the first one, the question was, how long would you wait when a light turns green before you honk your horn? So this is a participatory survey, so you got to help me out a little bit. How many of you would be like less than five seconds? Yeah, I bet there's more than that. Y'all aren't owning up to it. Ten seconds? Okay. How many of you are like, you just never would, you just sit there? Okay, yeah, that's, 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 that's awesome. I'm not one of those people. But um, do you know what the answer was? Which I think is just a bunch of baloney. 50 seconds. That was the average. Like, pick the friendliest town in the United States. I don't know, Charleston or Savannah or Mayberry. Andy Griffin isn't waiting 50 seconds, folks. Am I right? I mean, nobody is doing that, except you people that would never honk. But 50 seconds. So here was another question. How long would you wait for parents to quiet a screaming baby? One minute, anybody? Two? Those of you who have screaming children are probably like, I wait a long time. Well, the survey said almost three minutes. Two minutes and 41 seconds. Now, I'm thinking, obviously, those people are not flyers, right? Because if you fly, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, if you sit down and you figure out you have a screaming child, like in close proximity to you, you're not waiting three minutes. You're immediately finding the stewardess and saying, can I please have a different seat? Am I right? I mean, isn't that what you're going to do? So here's another one. How long do you wait at the doctor's office before you say, I'm going? 10 minutes? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 30, okay, hour, till whenever, how many, just I'm waiting till whenever he calls, okay, but see, this isn't even a fair question, because the answer is 32 minutes, and I'm thinking, that's just the initial doctor's tease, because you know what happens, you wait 32 minutes out in the regular waiting room, then you go back and you think you're going to see the doctor, right, but that's just a tease. You're going to go into a little room, and there's no magazines in that little room, and there's signs on the door that say, do not use your cell phone, or every piece of equipment will blow up in here and you'll kill everybody. So that's 32 minutes. I, I'm, not, I'm not buying that. Okay, how about this one? Waiting for your significant other to get ready. Okay, no fighting. I see people glaring at each other. Five minutes? Ten minutes? There's a ten. Fifteen? Twenty? Thirty? 
Y'all are getting awfully quiet. Nobody wants to make the other one mad. So I figured it takes me about five minutes to get ready, right? So in this survey, they said 21 minutes. So in my mind, that means nobody should take longer than 26 minutes to get ready, right? That, that sound fair enough? My wife wouldn't agree with that, but oh well. She's not here to defend herself. Okay, now you're going to have to go back into time. What about a late blind date? Some of you have to go back many, many years, I know. But how long would you have waited for a late blind date? Ten minutes? Well, Dennis, it depends on how good looking she was, right? <laughs> 20 minutes? 30 minutes? According to the survey, you'll see 30 minutes over here, 26 minutes. And if you watch the chick flicks where that kind of stuff happens, that seems to be about right. You know how it goes. One person's looking at their watch or their cell phone, depending on what era the movie was made in. And the patronizing waiter or waitress keeps coming by. Would you like some more bread? And that kind of seems to be the cue for them to, to, to take off. How about how long do you wait before you say something to the obnoxiously loud person talking on their cell phone? Two minutes? Less than two minutes? Less than two minutes, okay. Brian, less. Five? See, what I like to do is I just don't say anything. I just start making faces at them. <laughs> or, you know, just, just, just making fun of them. And have you ever noticed that, that people that are really loud on their cell phones get mad at you if they think you're eavesdropping? Like, dude, you're the one that's shouting for everybody to hear it. I'm not trying to hear your conversation. It's your fault. All right, here's the last one. Late to a new job interview. How many of you are like, zero? Okay, two minutes, five. So I'm like you guys, I'm like, zero. I mean, you just don't do that. Well, two minutes and six seconds. So I'm like, okay, how would you be two minutes late to a job interview? What could you say? Like, well, you know, I was just so impressed with the magnificent architecture of your building that slowed me down. Or my disability slowed me down. Yes, I said disability. You are going to hire me now, aren't you? Well, do you know that when we get to scriptures, we're just like... A lot of people in scripture, we're, we're the giddy up generation, right? We want everything and we want it now. I mean, we stick something in the microwave and we're drumming our fingers. I mean, we don't want to wait for anything when we're kids. We didn't want to wait for a piece of birthday cake. And, you know, when we're adults, we, didn't, we don't want to wait for anything. We don't want to wait for tables at restaurants. We want instant downloads. We want things to be ready immediately. We don't want to waste our time uh, waiting on anything. We want overnight deliveries. And that's just like the characters in the Bible. There were a lot of characters who would have had the hashtag hating to wait. And Abraham and Sarah, these people that we are studying, they didn't want to wait. So, so I want you to think about what's going on, just kind of, kind of catch you up a little bit. So in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, or to Abraham specifically, that you're going to have a son. And from this son, there's going to be so many descendants, you can't even count them, and it's going to be a great nation. When we get to Genesis chapter 16, Abraham is now 85 years old. 
His wife, Sarah, is 75 years old. And I'm sure they are thinking, hey, God, uh, what's going on here? We're kind of getting past the age where you can have children. Do you remember us, God? What are you doing? And this is a perfect example of what we've been talking about in this series, believing in God when life doesn't work. So here they are. Abraham and Sarah, they've been believing in God. They've been trusting God to do what he says he's going to do. And God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Have you ever been there? Like, you're trusting God, and you believe in God, but your life is just going south, and it just seems like it's always going south. And what do you do in those situations? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 16 because Abraham and Sarah felt exactly that way. And they decided that they were going to help God out. And it didn't turn out very well for them. So I'm sure for Abraham and Sarah, as I mentioned, probably most of their community knew about this promise. And I'm sure they're getting tired of being asked those questions. I'm sure their answers are probably getting pretty tense. Hey, Abraham, where's that son you said you were going to have? Hey, you and Sarah, you know you're not spring chickens anymore. You're getting older. What's going on? Are you sure, Abraham, that that's what God said to you? And so first of all, we read that that Sarah got tired of this. She decided that, that she wasn't waiting anymore for God to solve this predicament that she found herself in. And so you may remember, just again, we're doing a little bit of review. Way back in Genesis chapter 13, that Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt. And we were told that that Sarah was this very beautiful woman. And Pharaoh wanted her to be his wife. And so Abraham lied, basically, to save his own skin. And said that she was his sister. In the end, Pharaoh finds out that that's not true. That that Abraham is married to Sarah. But he had already given this dowry to Abraham for Sarah, thinking it was his sister. So he lets Abraham keep all that dowry, all those gifts, when they leave Egypt. In that dowry were some servants. And one of those servants' name, who was basically Sarah's servant, was a young lady by the name of Hagar. And so we pick it up, and this is what it says in Scripture, beginning in verse 2. She said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Excuse me. Perhaps I can build a family through here. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah had said. Now think if you're Sarah. This is probably her rationale. I'm getting older. She's probably already hitting menopause. I'm getting older. Scriptures doesn't say, the scriptures don't say, this promise doesn't, to Abraham, didn't say that I had to be the mother. It just said that Abraham had to be the father. Perhaps waiting isn't wise any longer. How are we going to keep up, she's probably thinking. We're 75 and 85 years old. How are we going to keep up with a little two-year-old toddler running around the house? Maybe God wants us to do something. Maybe that's part of the promise. Maybe God just didn't tell us that. So that's all of her rationale. And I think it's probably good that that they had a good marriage, that she felt comfortable enough to suggest this 
to, to Abraham, and, and she's very creative. And actually what she's saying is not illegal. If you go back to some of the societal codes back then, you read where it's perfectly legal if a wife can't have children for her to let her servant sleep with her husband. And then when that child is born, if the, servant, or if the husband says, this is my son, my adopted son, he becomes on equal footing with any other sons that he might have in that marriage. So Sarah, she gets great marks for, for creativity and problem solving. But what about Abraham? Because to me, he kind of faces a dilemma. Now, it says in Scripture that he immediately slept with her. And to me, that raises an interesting question. If God wasn't in this, why did he agree to this scheme? Why, why did he go along with it? I'm sure in his mind, I mean, what husband does not want to make their wife happy, especially if, if they can't have children to provide a, 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 a child, no matter what the means have to be? But the scripture seems to suggest that, that Abraham wouldn't have went along with this if Sarah hadn't suggested it. You've probably heard of the, the Dutch artist Rembrandt. And he used to paint a lot of biblical pictures. And one of the scenes that he painted is this scene in Genesis chapter 16. And in it you see a very healthy Abraham in bed and this very ugly Sarah brings Hagar, this very beautiful handmaiden, in to Abraham. And the artist gets one thing right and one thing wrong. He gets, where he gets it wrong is Sarah's not ugly. We know from Genesis chapter 13 that she's very beautiful. But what he does get right is this is Sarah's idea. And Abraham just goes along with it without, you know, seeking God. Now, before we bring the gavel down on Abraham, think about your last major blunder. What was the last major mistake you made? Did an irrational choice, did you, through emotions, make it appear rational at the moment? Did you, do, did you make a mistake because you allowed your emotions to kind of override your brain? You put your brain in autopilot, so to speak, and just let your emotions rule? The biggest problem here is not Sarah's rationale and not Abraham going along with the scheme. The biggest problem is neither one of them asked God about it. Neither one of them prayed about it. Nobody sought God's face. I mean, wouldn't it have been a little bit different if Abraham would have went out under the stars and said, God, I don't understand. You said we were going to have a great nation, and now we're 75 and 85 years old, and we don't even have a child. God, I don't understand what you're doing. Are we supposed to do something? Do you want us to continue waiting? God, you got we, we, we just don't understand. But Abraham doesn't do that. He didn't build any of those altars that we talked about a few weeks ago. Nobody prays. Now, if he would have prayed and sought God's face, and then maybe he could have went to Sarah and very gently said, Honey, you get an A for creativity, but not so much for theology. He could have done something like that. But that's not what happens. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 as we kind of continue the story. 
Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, that's that handmaiden, the one that came from Egypt, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise, notice that word down there, despise her mistress. Now, the scriptures don't record the dinner conversations that I kind of imagine happened between Abraham and Sarah after it was obvious that, that Hagar was pregnant. But I imagine it went something like this. Honey, we must have done the right thing. Because God wouldn't have let her get pregnant if it wasn't what God wanted to happen. And if you ever noticed how we can all kind of rationalize our behavior? It's like if we really want something bad enough, somehow we can rationalize that God approves it. And that's exactly what happens here. That word despise down there means to be disrespectful, but, but it's dishonorable. But I mean, it's like to the 10th degree of disrespect. Now, why would Hagar start disrespecting Sarah? Why would she do that? Well, you have to kind of understand a little bit about things in the ancient Near East. Back then, for a woman not to have a child, for a woman to be childless, was just terrible. And it was generally thought that if you didn't have children, you didn't have any value. Because you weren't contributing anything to society or your community, but yet you were using resources like food. And so when a woman didn't have a child and couldn't have, child, couldn't have a child, it was just bad. I mean, they just had no use for her in a sense. And that sounds terrible today, but that's the way it was back then. So Hagar actually had a higher social status than Sarah did because she could have children. And I'm sure Hagar's probably a little upset too because she realizes that she is just being used to have this child. So Abraham has committed adultery basically and Anytime someone commits adultery, no husband can sleep with, with another woman without driving a stake into his marriage. So now Abraham has a problem. Do you know what's worse than having one unhappy wife? Two unhappy wives. And that's where he finds himself. He's got two unhappy women living in his house. Hagar's got a baby bump and probably all the hormones and stuff that go with that. And these two ladies don't like each other. And so here's what we read in verse 5. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now she knows that she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then notice his response in verse 6. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. You know what they're doing, don't you? They're playing the blame game. I know you probably never did that in your marriage, but that's what they're doing in theirs. They're playing the blame game. Well, Abraham, it's your fault. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's not my fault. It was your idea. And you can suffer the consequences. I don't care what you do with that lady. You do whatever you want. It was your idea and you fix it. And so they got this blame game going on. And then we read, she fled. 
Hagar fled. She, where'd she flee to? She fled out into the desert. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. We read sometimes about or know of ladies that things are bad in their marriage, or guys for that matter, things are really bad and, and somebody leaves the house. How bad is it that this young pregnant lady with no food, no resources, no shelter, would go out into the desert to be exposed to predators and the elements? How bad were things in the house that she would do that? That would be awful. And it wasn't her fault. She's innocent in all this. She's probably sweeping the floor one day. And all of a sudden she finds herself in a wedding veil and going on a honeymoon with an 85-year-old groom. Wasn't her idea. So she's out in the desert and verses 7 through 10 we find out something about God's character. Hagar has been used and abused. She flees out into the desert, and then in her fear and her anger, a divine visitor comes to her, an angel. And I think it's worth noting that the angel came to her, not the other way around. And so the angel asks, what's going on? And here's what Hagar says back to her in verse 8. I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. And then when you get into verse 9, the story takes an interesting turn. So you might expect the angel to kind of commiserate with Hagar, right? Like, oh, this is terrible what's happening to you. God sent me to accompany you and to keep you safe, and I'll be with you through all of your travels. I mean, isn't that kind of what you would kind of expect? I mean, that's kind of what I would expect. But that's not what happens. Notice what verse 9 says. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back. That's what she tells her to do. Now think about if you're Hagar. Do you want to go back? I don't want to go back. I mean, this lady's probably going to treat me unkind some more. Abraham, who's the father, doesn't seem to want to protect me at all? Why would I want to be mistreated anymore? This unkind person, I don't want to go back. Probably he's beginning to wonder if this angel is really an, an angel from God. And to make matters worse, there's no explanation. Look at this. Go back. There's no go back because, go back for, go back, you know, some reason. It's just go back. And you know, sometimes when life is tough and you're believing in God and life is going south and you don't know why, God just tells you something and there's no reason. And you just have to trust. And that's what we've talked about Abraham. Just the faith. But he's not the only one in this story. Hagar's the same way. And then you get in toward the end of verse 10 and, and there's this promise that God makes to Hagar that she too is going to have a son and there's going to be numerous descendants. And then verses 11 and 12, the angel begins to elaborate on this blessing. And let's look at that in verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then in verse 12, the blessing continues. He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. I want you to notice that term, wild donkey. That is not a compliment. It kind of means what you probably think it means. It's derogatory in our language. It was derogatory in their language. And just basically, you can kind of understand, this guy's going to be wild. He's going to be a troublemaker. He is going to be filled with anger, rough, ready to fight all the time. He's not getting this little perlative at high school graduation most likely to succeed. Most likely, he's going to get most likely to go to prison. But we know from Scripture that God loved him. In Ishmael, his name literally means God hears. And you know, to this day, essentially, there are two lines of lineage over there in the, in the Middle East. Sons of Isaac and sons of Ishmael. And for 4,000 years, they have struggled against each other. So Hagar returns home. She has that child. She's instructed to name him Ishmael, and she does. Now, if you were to jump ahead and read ahead in the book of Genesis on Abraham's story, you realize that it's 14 more years before Abraham and Sarah actually conceive and have a child of their DNA together. So Abraham and Sarah, you could say, jumped ahead of God's plan by 14 years. They didn't want to wait. They ran ahead. And look at all the terrible consequences that occurred. Be careful of running ahead of God. Be careful of trying to push your agenda on God. Sometimes God doesn't answer us because it's for our own good. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're praying the great American prayer. God, I want this and I want it now. But God doesn't always work that way. So what do we do? You're believing in God and life is going south. Well, when it comes to the area of waiting, I think there's some things that we learn from this story. Four of them. The first one is this. Apply the brakes. Slow down, walk a little slower when you feel the need to hurry God along. Don't be trying to advance God's agenda for your life. Slow your pace down. A lot of times, it's good just to step away from the situation. Just, just step away. Get a little solitude. Get somewhere where you can pray about it a little bit more. Find some trusted advisors that you can talk to that just won't tell you what you want to hear, but they'll also tell you what you don't want to hear. And just resolve not to hurry things along. I think this statement is true. More often than not, we regret the things we do not do. Not the, we regret the things that we do, not the things that we don't do. Isn't that pretty true? That a lot of times we regret when we're in a hurry and emotions get the best of us. Which brings me to the second thing. Ask God 
for increased patience, wisdom, and self-control. Your best decisions will usually occur when you're calm. You ever notice that? When you're emotional, when you're mad, or even if you're sad, and you, and you try to make decisions, but just a lot of times you just make bad decisions. Look to the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to calm you down. Wait before you make those emotional kinds of decisions. Number three, imagine the worst case scenario that might happen if you wait. What's the worst thing that's gonna happen if you wait? You know what the answer is a lot of times? Nothing. And a lot of times that's okay. Maybe not always, but a lot of times that's okay. And then the last one, think of the other people that might be impacted by your decision. In this case, who is the collateral damage, so to speak? Hagar and her son. She was totally innocent to this matter. And yet, the collateral damage is her. She, she and her son, they became the collateral damage. They were just innocent bystanders. You know, if, you, if you're a parent and you, you're making big decisions, it's going to impact your children. You need, you need to understand that. It's going to impact the wife and the husband, you know, different decisions are made. If you get married just because you hear that biological clock ticking and it turns out to be a mistake, then another person was affected. It's one thing to be lonely, and, but it's a whole lot worse to be married and be in a bad marriage. Slow down. Talk to God. Get some trusted advisors. Think of who else could be harmed by your decision. And I want to close with this. Billy Rose is, was a respected columnist of yesteryear. He tells this kind of veiled story. This is a true story, and I'm going to share it with you this morning. And it kind of speaks to the hurried life. There was once a young man who with his dad farmed a little piece of property. And the dad and the son were quite different. The dad was one of these laid back kind of guys, relaxed, smell the roses kind of personalities. His son was this hard driving, ambitious, go, 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 gotta go, gotta go, gotta go kind of person. And so a couple times a year, they would load up their produce in their ox cart and they would take it to town and town was a considerable distance away to uh, sell their produce. And so one morning they load up the ox and, and the cart and, and they take off and the son wants to, you know, push all day and all night and get there the next morning so that they can sell their produce kind of before anybody else gets there and get the best prices. So he starts off driving and he's just goading that ox along and trying to push it for everything it's worth and the dad's like, slow down, just relax a little bit. But he's just, you know, pushing and pushing and so they get about four hours and four miles down the road and uh, the dad says, hey, pull over. This is your uncle's house. I wanna, I wanna get out and talk. And the son's just like, what, dad? Come on, we gotta go. He said, no, even though we live fairly close, I never get to spend any time with my brother. Uh, we're we're gonna just, just pull over. And so the son is just fuming as the, as the dad and the uncle spend about an hour talking. And so finally they get done talking and they resume the journey. And this time the dad's driving the ox cart. And they come to a fork in the road and they both know, they both, it gets to the city 
But one of them is a very picturesque, very scenic route, and the other route is faster. And the dad takes the scenic route. Oh, man, the son's just about to blow a gasket. What are you doing? You know this takes longer. Son, it's beautiful. And we'll be able to see the streams and the bubbling brooks and the wildflowers. And the son is just so upset. And so they continue the journey. And finally, the son's starting to go down and there's this beautiful sunset and the dad mentions that and the son doesn't want to hear about it and they camp out and so there's no chance now they're going to get there in time early the next morning and the dad sleeps like a log all night and the son he's just glaring at the stars I mean he's just so upset with his dad so the next morning he wakes his dad up early and they get going and they've gone about an hour and they come across this other farmer whose, whose cart is in the ditch and he needs some help. And so the dad says, well, we need to help him get his, his cart and his ox out of the ditch. And the son's like, dad, we don't have time for that. What is wrong with you? You care more about flowers than making money and helping people. The dad's like, that's the nicest thing you've said to me in a long time. So they help the farmer out, and of course that cost them another hour. And just as they kind of get back on the road after helping the other farmer out of the ditch, there's this great big boom off in the distance, and the sky just turns black. And the dad said, well, it must be raining in the big city. And so they continue on their journey, and uh, of course the son's furious because now it's going to be raining when they get there, and they could have already sold everything and been on their way home. But at last, they kind of crested a hill late in the afternoon, and they looked down that hill into the big city, and they both just stare for a long time. Neither of them say a word. Finally, the son reaches over, and he puts his arm around his dad, and he said, Dad, you're right. They turned their cart around, and begin to roll slowly away from the city, what had been the city of Hiroshima. Slow down. Grow deep. Learn to wait on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, so oftentimes I'm just reminded of how practical scriptures are. 4,000 years ago, Abraham and Sarah were impatient. And here we are, multiple centuries later, and we're the same way. We want our cake and we want it now. We want everything quickly. But Father, we look at Abraham and Sarah and we just see those principles. And Father, I just, I just pray for all of us that, Father, you just help us to slow down. You know, one of the positives of coming out of this pandemic is we've, so many of us have been forced to slow down, but as things reopen and, you know, there's that temptation to just jump back in it like we were and, Father, help us to slow our lives down just so we can hear you talk to us more for the benefits of our health and for the benefits of our family. I know there are probably people here this morning that are facing big decisions Maybe they're like Abraham and Sarah and they're just not quite sure and they're tempted to just jump on ahead. Father, give them patience. Maybe give them some affirmations or confirmations of what you want them to do. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name.